Something to note, all myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and entertaining and supplemented them with additional research into medieval British traditions. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. Deep within the hollow of a giant oak, an ancient man sits. He's been there so long, he's almost become a part of the tree itself. Its roots wrap around his limbs, intertwining with the fabric of his rotting cloak and long white beard. His open eyes stare ahead, scarred with cataracts, like the surface of a deep pool. But he does not need them to see you. Ah, seek ye a tale of chivalry, of noble knights and daring deeds, of steel drawn from stone and water, a boy who would be king. Of these things I can aware ye, but with them come another sort, ill-made knights and nightshade queens, devil's spawn and table smote. This tale ye seek, tis not what ye think. Less than legend, more than myth, a dark and winding labyrinth, history and fairy fiction, the dream of an old mad magician. If ye be wise, then heed my warning. Turn back, lest ye regret the knowing. Or stay, and forget not these words. The legend of a man and sword. Welcome to Mythology, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find all episodes of Mythology and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. In the mythology of medieval Britain, no one looms as large as King Arthur. From as early as 830 CE, he was remembered as a legendary warrior, best known for defending the country from Saxon invaders. Today, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who hasn't at least heard of Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. But as ubiquitous as they are, these stories are difficult to piece together. Like many older mythologies, the Arthurian legends don't come from a single body of work. The closest thing the legends have to an original author would be Geoffrey of Monmouth, a British clergy member who wrote The History of the Kings of Britain in the 12th century CE. This heavily fictionalized epic drew inspiration from historical battles as well as Welsh and Celtic myths and created the first tales that are recognizable as Arthurian canon. Monmouth's vision captured the imagination of medieval Europe. Over the next few hundred years, a revolving door of British, French, and German authors would add to the stories, from Camelot to the affair of Lancelot and Guinevere to the quest for the Holy Grail. 
For our rendition, we've sought a balance between the old and the new, staying true to the earliest versions of the legend when possible, while including iconic characters and storylines that were added later. We'll start today with the most timeless tale of them all, the story of a boy born to be king, and the sword that unlocked his destiny. Coming up, the legend begins. It was a bright, crisp midwinter day, just cold enough that a few snowdrifts remained on the sun-dappled forest floor. The trees were alive with the voices of songbirds, and one voice that did not belong. Cable! A wolfhound came tearing out of the brush, scattering a flock of birds as he bounded across the clearing. A boy scrambled after him. Fair of hair and slight of frame, he was just 15 years old. His name was Arthur, and the morning was not going to his liking at all. He'd been looking forward to the post-Christmas hunt for weeks. Two months ago, at the All Hollow Mass Festival, his brother Kay had been knighted, and Arthur had been promoted from page boy to squire. He knew Kay didn't think he was ready and would have preferred one of the older pages, but Arthur was determined to prove himself. Being a squire was an important job. As Kay's assistant on and off the battlefield, he was charged with caring for his brother's arms and armor, as well as his horse, hawk, and hound. It was the last of these that was the cause of Arthur's current misery. Kay's youngest hound, Cavill, had gone running off away from the rest of the pack, and Arthur had been forced to chase after him. Cavill had led him so deep in the forest, Arthur doubted whether he could find the hunting party again. His only hope at salvaging his dignity would be to catch the dog and get it home in one piece, if he could even manage that. Here, boy. Cavill, get back. Arthur's boot caught a root, and he went tumbling head over heels into a snowdrift. He came sputtering up for air a second later, just in time to see the dog's tail disappear into the trees. Ah, Kay's going to have me flayed. Arthur picked himself up off the ground, brushing snow off his arms and legs. He looked up at the sound of something approaching. Come back, have you? Don't think I'm going to forget this, you mangy... Uh Oh. A massive, dark shape stepped into the clearing. It was a giant boar, nearly as tall as Arthur at the shoulders, and three times as thick around. Its massive head was pointed down as it snuffled along the forest floor, searching for mushrooms. It caught sight of Arthur and froze. For a long moment, neither boy nor beast moved. Arthur swallowed, eyeing the long, curved tusks sprouting from the boar's snout. Slowly, he reached for the dagger on his belt, but as his fingers touched the grip, he saw the boar's nostrils flare. Hello! The boar charged, 
Arthur leapt back and tried to draw the knife, but it caught in its sheath. He fell back on his buttocks as the boar sped past him, dashing away into the forest. Is anyone there? Will anyone help me? What now? Knife in hand, Arthur crept through the woods toward the voice. He pulled aside a branch and peered out at the source. An old man was making his way through the forest. He was dressed in the traveler's cloak of dark sheep's wool with a shaggy pointed hood that stuck straight up. His improbably long gray beard was thick with intricate braids, and his brow and cheeks were marked with runes in faded blue-gray ink. He led behind him a mule who was every bit as haggard as he was, weighted down with an enormous rucksack. Where have you gotten us to now, Applecore? I fall asleep for one moment, and the next thing you know, the path has disappeared out from under us. Hello? Oh. Arthur stepped out from the trees into the man's path. He still gripped his knife, but kept it lowered at his side. Who goes there? State your business in my father's forest. Who are you? Your father's forest? I thought this forest belonged to the trees. Your father's not a tree, is he? He is Sir Ector of Cambria. My brother is Sir Kay, and I am his squire, Arthur. Now will you tell me who you are, or shall I assume you a bandit? Now please, no, my boy. My good friend Applecore here does quite enough assuming for the three of us. He assumed himself into his current form and assumed the both of us into our present predicament. I am Emerus Ambrosius. Scribe, courier, mathematician, herbalist, and mender of broken things. Have you got any? What? Broken things. Most people do. Applecore, for instance, has a most irreparable sense of direction. Speaking of which, perhaps you would be so kind as to direct us out of this forest. Even better, if you know somewhere, we might find a bed and roof for the night. How do I know that you won't attack and rob me as soon as my back is turned? You do not, unless you can see the future, or unless you were born in the future and uh, have aged backward in time. Hmm. Were you? Uh, no. Oh, what a relief. In any case, you do not know if I can be trusted, and so you will have to make up your mind for yourself. Will you help me? Fine, but no more shouting, or we will attract trouble. Come on, my father's castle is this way. Now, there are castles, and then there are castles. Sir Ector's was of the lesser sort. Little more than a single stone tower and courtyard, it stood on a hill overlooking a marshy lake on one side and a plot of unimpressive fields on the other. Arthur led the old man and mule across these, away from the forest. As they neared the tower, the shaggy wolfhound Cavill came bounding across the field to greet them. 
Arthur was relieved to see that the dog had found its own way home. He was less pleased when he reached the stable and found Kay's horse already in its stall. The hunting party had beaten him back. The great hall was packed to the rafters. Sir Ector had invited all the peasant families who worked the surrounding fields to join in the feast. They laughed and ate, lifting goblets of wine and raucous toasts to the hunters. Arthur's older brother Kay sat near the head of the table, in the privileged seat beside their parents. Dark, brawny, and bearded, he bore little resemblance to his squire. At the moment, he was too busy regaling his dinner guests with stories of the hunt to notice Arthur and the old man enter. So there I was all alone in the darkest boughs of the forest. My squire had abandoned me. My hound was gone, probably gored by the monster before me. It was a true behemoth, a giant boar like nothing you'd ever seen, with tusks as long as spearheads. The beast charged. I knew I only had a second to react. So I drew my sword and lopped off its head. Arthur glanced at the half-eaten wild pig carcass at the center of the table. It was large, but nothing compared to the boar he'd encountered in the woods. Before Kay could dive back into the story, Arthur stepped forward and tapped him on the shoulder. Not now, Arthur, I'm talking. Arthur, you're back! I was worried you were going to be lost all night again. I wasn't lost. I was chasing your dog through half the forest. Kevil still won't listen to me. <laughs> well, that's just because he doesn't respect you. But listen, after dinner, make sure you stop by the stables. Kidfling needs new shoes, and her stall's got to be mucked before we leave. Leave? What are you talking about? You haven't heard? We've had a messenger from Londinium. The Archbishop is hosting attorney there this New Year's Day. Father and I are both scheduled for the joust. A tournament? And I'm to come with you? Of course you are. What do you expect me to do, carry my own sword? Honestly. Kay turned back to his meal, clearly finished with the conversation. Arthur stood beside him for a moment, still processing the news. Then he noticed Emerus nearby, helping himself to a plate of roast boar. Did you hear that, Emrys? I'm going to Londinium. Mm-hmm. You know, I have some letters that need delivering there, but uh, it's not the safest journey these days, especially for an old man traveling alone. I'm sure Kay won't mind you traveling with us. But what am I doing? I've got to get to the stables. So much work to do. Uh, that you do, my boy, that you do. It, should you need me, I'll be here making sure all this marvelous food doesn't go to waste. It took three hours for Arthur to tend to Kay's horse and finish mucking the stables, then several more packing his weapons and armor. All the while, Arthur's head spun with images of clashing knights on horseback. According to Sir Ector, there'd been a tournament every year back when old King Pendragon was alive. But those days were long gone, and the constant warring of the past decade had left little opportunity for games. As he buffed Kay's breastplate for the third time, Arthur found himself staring at his reflection. 
His smile faded as he considered himself, not particularly tall or strong or anything of consequence. But he was a knight squire, Kay's squire. Kay would be jousting not just for his own honor, but for that of their entire family, and Arthur would not let him down. His jaw tightened, and he began to polish again. The caravan set out after breakfast the next morning. Arthur had never been more than a day's ride from his father's lands, and the journey brought many new sights. They spent two days navigating a rocky pass, then followed a mountain stream down into a valley where it joined with a great river. Most of the fields they passed were frozen and brown, and the peasant populations were more haggard than any Arthur had seen before. Sir Kay and Sir Ector rode at the front of the company, hoping that the presence of two knights would warn off any bandits. Arthur rode near the back and had been charged with keeping an eye out for anyone approaching the company from the rear. As a result, he spent a great deal of time in the company of Emerus and his mule, who were the slowest members of the caravan. Arthur soon learned just how much his traveling companion liked to talk. When the Romans sought to conquer the world, they did not stop at the map's edge. It was Brutus, the great-grandson of the Trojan hero Aeneas, who led their first ships here. He found a land that was lush with verdant hills, prime for tilling. The forests brimmed with wild beasts, the pastures with cattle, the mountains with precious metals. He named it Britannia, after himself. He sounds like a prat. Indeed. By the 6th century, Rome was crumbling, undone by enemies without and within. A distant, rainy island at the edge of the world was the last of the dying empire's concerns. The Roman military abandoned Britain, though they had already made an immortal mark on it. I hope that answers your question. I didn't ask a question. You didn't ask a question? Well, that's just the trouble with youth these days. Young people should be curious. They should ask questions. All right. What do your tattoos mean? What's that? Those rune marks on your face. What do they mean? Ah, well, they mean a great many things, but mainly, don't ever do anything you can't undo unless you're quite sure you know what you're doing. Why are we stopping? Boy, can you see what's going on up there? My eyes aren't as good as they used to be. Something's wrong. There's men guarding the bridge up ahead. They've got mail armor and helmets. Ah, soldiers watching the road for bandits, no doubt. Can't be too careful these days. Don't worry. They'll see who we are and send us on our way. I hope you're right, but I'm not sure. You doubt the wisdom of your elders, do you? I should think you would trust my judgment, but perhaps you think me a doddering old fool. It's not that. I just don't think those men are going to let us pass. And why is that? 
because they've all just drawn their swords. Coming up, Arthur gets a lesson in leadership. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. Arthur raced to the front of the caravan with old Emerus hurrying behind him. Up ahead, his brother, Sir Kay, and father, Sir Ector, sat on their horses, talking to a dozen men guarding a rickety wooden bridge. The conversation did not appear to be going well as the men had all suddenly drawn their weapons. Arthur watched as Kay and Ector turned and rode back to the caravan. What's going on? These men are demanding payment to cross the bridge. Half of everything we've got. And this is supposed to be the King's Road. Suppose that doesn't mean much anymore. Can we cross somewhere else? Not if we want to make it to Londinium by New Year's. Besides, I don't think they'd let us. They're itching for an excuse to attack. So we'll have to fight them. Ah, 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 not so hasty, my boy. These are men we're dealing with, not beasts. They may still be reasoned with. I shall speak with them. They didn't seem like reasonable sorts to me, but be my guest. He really is going to talk to them. Arthur, who exactly is this old man? I've been wondering that myself. Arthur watched as Emerus strolled up to the bridge where he began to converse with the men. They talked for several minutes. Arthur saw the bandit's body language shift from hostile to curious to almost friendly. In the end, Emerus shook the lead bandit's hand, then turned and waved for the caravan to continue. A few minutes later, they were crossing over the bridge right past the grinning bandits. Arthur heard a few of the men shout words of encouragement and good luck to Kay. Emrys, what on earth did you say to them? Well, I sensed they were enterprising fellows, so I made them a business proposition. They have agreed to sponsor your brother in the upcoming tournament. In exchange for letting us pass, I promise 10% of the purse if he takes first, 15 if he takes second, and 20 if he comes in third place. But there is no monetary price, just titles in the respect of the other lords. Ah, you don't say. 
You tricked them. I reasoned with them. <laughs> if they were out-reasoned, I'd blame it on a poor education. Remember this lesson, young Arthur. The truest victory is not won by the sword. A battle of wits leaves far fewer casualties. Eh, most of the time. The rest of the journey passed without incident. It was late on the fifth day when they got their first glimpse of Londinium. Arthur had grown up hearing stories of the old Roman city, but nothing could have prepared him for the size or the press of people. Everywhere he looked, he saw buildings many times the size of Hector's castle, with the flags of the various guild houses fluttering from their roofs. The bridge to enter the city was practically a town itself, clogged with pedestrians, makeshift merchant stalls, and livestock. They said goodbye to Emerus at the gates of the city. Arthur watched the strange old man disappear into the crowd and wondered if he would ever see him again. With some difficulty, they found an inn that still had rooms, though it was farther from the tournament field than Kay would have liked. Arthur hurried to unload his brother's armor and equipment, and then, at long last, it was time for the games. The tournament pitch had been erected at the north end of the city in the shadow of St. Paul's Cathedral. One field had been reserved entirely for jousting, one for archery, and one for wrestling and swordsmanship. Arthur watched as two knights on horseback charged one another down a narrow dirt path. There was an explosion of splintering wood as the knights collided. One of the men was sent flying backward off his horse before crashing into the dirt. The other knight charged past, raising his shattered lance in victory. The spectators erupted in applause, and Arthur found himself cheering along with them. He stopped when he noticed Kay's stony expression. What's the matter, Kay? You see that knight with the broken lance? The one with the two-headed eagle as a sigil? That's King Lot, king of the Orkney Islands, though he fancies himself king of all Britain. He and his brother Urian have spent the last decade trying to claim power, but they're not much closer than when they started. I expect they'll be using this tournament to drum up more supporters. Do you think they'll approach you? Doubt it. We haven't got enough land or men to be worth their time. But I cherish the chance to tell them where they can stick their... Wait. Arthur, where's my sword? You have only my lance here. That's right. It's just the joust today. You're not scheduled for swordsmanship until tomorrow. I need my lance and my sword for the joust. What do you think I'm supposed to do if I'm unseated? Kay gestured to the jousting pitch below, where a fresh pair of knights had just collided. This time, both lances struck home, sending the riders tumbling into the dirt. They scrambled back up to their feet and drew broadswords. Arthur paled as he watched the flash of steel below. Uh, I didn't realize, but there's still time. I'll run back and fetch it from the inn. That's halfway across the city. You'll never make it. I'll be quick. Stall them as long as you can. 
Arthur dove into the crowd, fighting his way through the mass of spectators. After a few minutes of pushing, he was startled to find that he had made almost no progress. More people were entering the arena every minute. The entryway had become a river of bodies, and Arthur was swimming against the current. He looked around frantically, then spotted what he needed. A scaffold stood at the far end of the arena beside a section of unfinished wall. Arthur took off toward it, shouting apologies as he stepped on feet and knocked into people. Excuse me. Sorry. Uh, uh, coming through. He reached the scaffold a moment later and started to climb. A trio of urchins sat at the top, watching the games below. They hollered curses at Arthur as he pulled himself onto the platform, then watched wide-eyed as he launched himself off the scaffold. He landed roughly on the wall and tumbled toward the edge. Somehow he managed to course correct, turning the fall into a roll. He was on his feet a moment later without stopping. The city wall proved to be a far quicker route than the circuitous maze of streets and alleys, and soon Arthur could see the roof of the inn. He climbed down to a lower balcony and jumped to the alley using a pile of refuse to cushion his fall. He arrived in front of the inn, panting, sweaty, and smelling of garbage. But the inn was locked, its windows dark. Arthur banged frantically on the door. Hello? Is anyone there? Innkeeper? Innkeeper's wife? Please? Ah, your pleases won't do you much good, I'm afraid. They've all gone. Arthur spun around to see a haggard old beggar seated at the mouth of the nearest alley, wrapped in a shabby blanket. He raised a tin cup and jangled it at Arthur. Uh, spare a coin? I'll give you everything I've got if you can tell me where the innkeeper's gone. To the tournament, along with the rest of the city, I expect. You'll just have to wait. I can't wait. My brother Kate jousts in less than an hour, and he has no sword. Oh, but it's no use. I'll never find one in time. Ah, that is a pickle. I wish I could be of more help, boy. I surely do, but the only sword I know of's the one in St. Paul's churchyard. What did you say? There's a sword in the churchyard? Unless some other young knight has beaten you to it, t'was still there this morning when I passed it. Hey, boy! Where's my coin? Arthur was already halfway down the street. Before he rounded the corner, he ripped his small coin purse from his belt and hurled it back to the man. Thank you, lad. Good luck with the sword. Wonder if I should have mentioned that no one can move the thing. The cold winter air stung Arthur's lungs as he ran the final stretch to the cathedral. When he finally arrived, he was surprised to find no guards posted at the gate. The churchyard of St. Paul's was still and quiet, and a dusting of fresh snow topped the silent tombstones. Arthur crept between the crypts, searching the ground for any sign of an abandoned sword. It seemed an unlikely place to find one. 
But then he saw it. A short pillar of stone stood alone at the center of the courtyard. A massive black anvil sat upon it and plunged blade first into the iron block was the sword. Arthur approached, uncertain. He could see that the sword was exceptionally crafted, with a golden hilt and a pommel crafted into the shape of a dragon's head. The blade glittered so fiercely in the sunlight that Arthur had to shield his eyes as he stepped up to the pillar. You're beautiful, but what are you doing in a place like this? As he reached out for the sword, the hairs on Arthur's arm stood on end. He glanced around to make sure that he was still alone, but there was no one there. Maybe I shouldn't. He let his arm drop and took a step back. Someone had clearly put the sword there for a reason. It seemed wrong to disturb it. But then the distant sound of cheering crowds floated over the walls of the churchyard. Kay was counting on him. Arthur stepped forward and grabbed the sword by the hilt. It felt oddly comfortable in his grip. He pulled, but the sword didn't budge. Arthur adjusted his grip grasping each arm of the crossguard and yanked upwards with all his strength. Come on, you blasted piece of metal! Move! The sword shifted ever so slightly and then slid suddenly upwards. The blade was longer than he expected and Arthur had to place one foot on the stone to get enough clearance to pull it all the way out. As it finally slid free, he stumbled back and the sword swung up. Arthur stood with the sword held out before him, staring at the shining blade. Whoa. A fresh wave of cheers drifted over the churchyard wall. Arthur let the blade drop. He cradled it to his chest and took off running in the direction of the arena. He was in such a hurry, he did not notice the glint of gold at the base of the stone. In his struggle to free the sword, he had brushed away some of the snow, revealing the first part of an inscription. The words glittered in the sunlight. Whosoever pulleth this sword from this stone, the rest of the inscription remained covered in snow, but it would not stay hidden much longer. Coming up, Arthur's destiny is revealed. Now back to the story. Arthur hurried through the tournament crowd, cradling the heavy sword beneath his cloak. He still couldn't believe his luck. He'd found the magnificent weapon in an empty churchyard, standing upright in an iron anvil perched on a block of stone. It was so beautiful, he thought Kay might even forgive him for forgetting his sword back at the inn. Arthur just hoped he wasn't too late. 
The competitor's tent was packed with knights and their coteries. Men who had already taken part in the joust lounged on sofas, resting their bruised and battered bodies. Those who had yet to compete chattered nervously in small groups. Arthur found his brother pacing in a corner. Kay, I'm back, and I've got the sword. Arthur, thank heavens. I got them to push my match back, but I can't stall much longer. They've got me riding against Yvonne. This isn't my sword. I had to improvise, but this one will work just as well, won't it? Kay didn't answer. He turned the sword over in his hands, his expression inscrutable. He looked up at Arthur, then back at the sword again. Arthur, where did you get this? I didn't steal it, I promise. It was just sitting there in the old churchyard, lodged in this old anvil. No one was using it. I'll put it back as soon as we're finished. You're saying that you pulled this sword out of the stone at St. Paul's? Um, yes. Is that bad? All right, Arthur. You're going to do exactly as I say. Look behind me, casually. Is anyone watching us? Uh, now that you mention it, there are two men in the corner that seem to be paying us a fair bit of attention. Have they seen the sword? Uh, maybe? Probably. Uh, definitely. They're looking right at it. God's nails, time to go! Kay pushed the sword back into Arthur's hands, then grabbed the collar of his cloak and dragged him toward the exit. Several knights turned to watch the commotion, and Arthur noticed the men who had seen the sword wave a few companions over. Then they were outside the tent, and Kay was pulling Arthur through the crowd around the tournament pitch. He heard the announcer calling Kay's name for the next match, but Kay didn't stop. He dragged Arthur to a cluster of private box tents along the edge of the pitch. Kay found one that was empty and pushed Arthur inside. Stay here. Don't go anywhere. Don't talk to anyone. And for heaven's sake, don't let anyone see that started sword. Kay disappeared, letting the tent flap fall shut. Arthur looked down at the sword, bewildered. What have I gotten myself into now? A great and glorious destiny. Arthur leapt back in surprise. A man had appeared in front of him, so suddenly that Arthur was sure he had stepped out of thin air. He wore a magnificent midnight blue cloak that shimmered like water in moonlight. The material was unlike anything Arthur had seen before, but the man's face was all too familiar. He had the same tangled beard, the same rune-marked cheeks, and the same twinkling eyes. Emrys? What are you doing here? Ah, yes. Emerus Ambrosius. Not an inaccurate name, but perhaps a bit dated. Let us be on friendlier terms. Henceforth, you may know me as... Merlin. The old man grinned mischievously. Arthur realized that he was waiting for a response. Should that mean something to me? What? You had never heard of Merlin the Wild? Old Merthenvilt? Uh, enchanter of ages, uh, commander of giants, uh, friend of the Fae? 
doesn't ring a bell. Really? I'm quite famous, you know. I had tea with the Archbishop just this morning. Congratulations. And the legend of the sword. Tell me you are at least familiar with that. Sorry. What has Ector been doing all these years? When I left you with him, I was quite clear he was to see to your education. Now I find he's taught you nothing. What do you mean, when you left me with him? And I know some things. I've studied my Latin and histories, and I've been trained as a squire. Ah, uh, worse than nothing. He's filled your head with useless facts and fiddle-faddle. I'll just have to do it myself. From the beginning. No, I can do better than that. From the middle. He's in here. Arthur turned as the tent flap pulled back. Kay re-entered with Sir Ector in tow. The older knight spotted Merlin and froze, his face going sheet white. Ah, Ector. Apologies for not revealing myself sooner. I wished to keep a low profile until I knew the boy's education was progressing. I admit I am a bit underwhelmed. He doesn't even know about the sword. I do. Arthur looked at his brother in surprise. Kay shifted nervously. Thank you, Sir Kay, if you would be so kind as to enlighten the boy. It happened years ago, when I was just a lad. Old King Pendragon was dead, poisoned by the Saxons, some said. And without an heir to follow him, no man alive had a claim to the throne, and so every man thought he did. The wars were incredible. Picts, Scots, Saxons, Bretons, all killing each other. People talked about it like it was the end of the world. The Archbishop was desperate. He summoned all the lords and barons here to Londinium. He had us come to St. Paul's for the Christmas vigil. I suppose he thought he could shame us into stopping the fight. He didn't understand the men he was dealing with. Father brought me with him. We sat in the pews with our enemies all around us, listening to the Archbishop preach about peace. Father insisted that we attend unarmed, as the Archbishop requested, but I could see the chainmail glittering beneath the tunics of Lot's men. I'd never been so afraid. It happened during the consecration of the Eucharist. I remember seeing the Archbishop raise the golden chalice, and then there was a great rumbling sound. Light flooded through the windows, bright as sunlight, then it was gone. We all rushed out into the churchyard to see what had caused it. And there it was, a block of stone where none had been before. Atop the stone was an anvil, and within the anvil the sword. But the strangest part of all was the writing on the stone. I don't remember the exact words. Whosoever pulleth this sword from this stone and anvil is rightwise king, born of all England. Everyone turned toward Arthur. He had dropped the sword. Merlin stooped to pick it up, cradling it reverently. Oh, please continue, Sir Kay. All of the lords who were there tried to pull it out. 
First they tried one at a time, then in groups of twos and threes. Even I got a chance, but none of us could so much as shift the thing. In the end, the Archbishop said the true king must not be present among us, but that one day he would appear to claim the sword. But that's ridiculous, right? A sword can't decide the king. No, boy. A sword cannot make a man a king, but this particular sword can recognize one. It was forged from the heart of the Pendragon Star, the comet that prophesied Uther's rise, and enchanted by the Sisters of Avalon so that only its true owner could draw it from that stone. So, if I pulled it out, what does that mean? That you are the king, the son of Uther Pendragon and rightful heir to the throne of all Britain. I know this to be true, for it was I, Merlin, who took you from the arms of your mother, Lady Egrain. I who delivered you to Sir Ector, your guardian, so you could be raised in secret, safe from your father's enemies. That is why the sword responded to you. But that's not possible. Sir Ector is my father. Arthur looked desperately to Ector for support, but the old knight was staring at the ground. Before Arthur could say anything else, Kay stepped forward and knelt in front of him. Kay, what are you doing? By my life and my honor, I pledge myself to you. May I never betray or forsake you. And should you call upon me, whether in time of war or peace, always will I answer. From this day forth, I will serve you as my king and master. Stop it! I am your brother and squire. You cannot kneel to me. But Arthur's protest did no good. A moment later, Sir Ector stepped forward to join his son, kneeling before Arthur. Father, please stop. I'm not a king. I'm just Arthur. Just Arthur. Suddenly, there was the sound of a commotion outside the tent. Kay leapt to his feet and ran to look out. There are men coming this way, a lot of them, and they're armed. <sighs> no doubt. News that the sword has been pulled has already made its way through the camp. Those knights will be curious to see who is responsible. Some will want to claim the sword for themselves. Others will seek to stop your ascension before the Archbishop learns of it. They're going to try to kill you. What do we do? Kay ignored the question, turning to survey the tent. He ran to a chest in the corner and rifled through it, pulling out an axe, longbow, and quiver of arrows. He passed the axe to Sir Ector, keeping the bow for himself. Merlin held the sword out to Arthur, offering him the hilt. It is time for your next lesson, Master Arthur. Remember what I told you at the bridge. If a battle can be won with words, speak. If it can be won with cunning, think. But if you find yourself cornered, if your enemy is set on your death, if you can see no other way through to victory, then you must be prepared to fight.
Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back Tuesday with the next part of the legend of King Arthur. Join us as Arthur continues his education with Merlin and learns what it means to be king. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next Tuesday with another chapter of this epic story. Mythology is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Mythology was written by Andrew Kelleher, with writing assistance by Robert Teamstra and Greg Castro. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Adriana Gomez. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Kai Jordan, Drew Lawn, and Laith Walshlegger. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Thank you.